Good morning, Calvary Bible Chapel. As I was thinking about this message, in which we will begin the ninth chapter of the book of Matthew, I was thinking about uh, the ongoing battle for people's minds today. And uh, one of the battles that's going on today is that regarding the seriousness of the COVID-19 virus. You could watch some news articles that would emphasize just how dangerous this disease is and our relative helplessness before it and because of that the great need for people to be staying at home and exercising social distancing. But then you could find uh, news articles uh, that try to de-emphasize the danger of COVID-19 and um, saying, claiming that some of the social distancing that's being exercised is perhaps not necessary or we might be overdoing it. And it's almost like a, like I said, a battle for people's minds. There's different media outlets or there's di different sources of the stories likely have different motivations behind uh, scaring you or perhaps trying to make you not afraid of the COVID-19. And so that becomes a motivation for these different stories you might see on the media. The Bible tells us that there is another battle uh, for people's minds, and that one is uh, not in regards to COVID-19 or physical danger as it is in regards to spiritual danger. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, For the weapons of a warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul there is speaking in regards to his ministry, and he describes his ministry as spiritual warfare, but the battleground in which that warfare takes place is the mind of men and women. That's why he's talking about uh, casting down arguments in verse 5, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. There is a battle over people's minds to conform them to the knowledge of God. Or, minds will rebel against the knowledge of God and want to believe things that are contrary to the truth of God. And uh, we will see that battle in the passage uh, we will be reading in Matthew chapter 9. We'll try to apply it to the battle that goes on in people, people's minds today. You'll see that it is a battle that, 
that's very much still being fought over people's minds. With that, uh, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1. So he, that is Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. As we look at this passage, we will refer to a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, which you will find in chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 says, Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. If you continue in Luke 5, you will see that this is the same passage. And so as we look at this passage in Matthew, we have to put it in the right perspective. This wasn't an ordinary uh, meeting of the Lord Jesus where just people came to him seeking to be healed of their sicknesses, but uh, there were gathered together Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, from every town in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Why might that be? Uh, it seems to me the easiest way of understanding it is that this was kind of a council of, of rabbis or Pharisees or scribes, if you would, that are trying to decide uh, their official position regarding Jesus. Now, Jesus has been ministering for some time. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus went about all Galilee, verse 23, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then we're told his fame went throughout all Syria. So Jesus has been ministering for some time, including teaching in synagogues, including healing people, and he became quite famous as a result. And I can imagine the uh, Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, not being sure what to do with Jesus. Maybe some of them thought highly of him. He is um, he's doing good work. He's healing people. He's teaching people about God. Some may have been jealous of him because he was getting so famous. Some may have had uh, 
doubts about the things that he was teaching or about the significance and the authenticity of his miracles. And so they gather together to Jesus. They want to listen to what Jesus has to say. Now, interestingly, it mentions in Luke also that the power of the Lord was present to heal them. It suggests that the Lord was ready to help these religious uh, leaders, perhaps with the physical ailments, perhaps with their need for better spiritual understanding, and yet somehow they were not availing themselves to the benefit of the Lord as others will. So it seems like there's something not ideal about the situation. Certainly having doubts about who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing wasn't really a good position to be in, but uh, we could hope for the best until we see what happens here, that maybe there's some uh, real interest as to who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing. Now, then we see uh, in Matthew, uh, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. In Luke, we see that uh, when they could not find how they might bring him in because there were so many people in the house because of the crowd, they went up on their housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So not only was this uh, paralytic, a person who couldn't walk because of his physical condition, uh, being carried on a bed, I imagine from some distance, but his friends carry him on the roof, they remove the tiling or whatever it was that was covering the house and they let him down through into the midst before Jesus. Quite a disruption, I imagine, to the meeting. But here at least is someone who is really seeking Jesus' help. Unlike the religious leaders who are seeking to come to some sort of a consensus or official position about who Jesus is and what he was doing is a person who is very certain in what he needs. He needs healing. He is a paralytic. He can't walk. Uh, today I was able to walk to my car, drive my car over here and then walk from my car and uh, stand here where I'm recording this message. And that's a great benefit to me. I'm able to go out and play uh, soccer or basketball with my children, and that is a great uh, benefit to me. Our prayers go to our brother Don, who uh, he is uh, going into surgery, or is right now in surgery, uh, for his uh, infection in his heel, uh, his broken heel. And, and there's a question about his being able to walk and we, we certainly are praying for him for complete healing uh, and yet we take we take a lot of the gifts of God for granted. Here is a man who has been deprived from his ability to walk because of paralysis. His legs will just not obey his mind. He has no control over his body below his waistline and as a result he's not able to walk at all. 
And so he, he, he knows what he wants. He wants to be able to walk. And he's heard about Jesus and Jesus' abilities to heal people from all kinds of conditions. And so he knows what he wants. He wants Jesus to heal him. And so he comes, actually literally carried by his friends, to Jesus. Jesus, uh, we are told, saw their faith. And uh, this is not insignificant that it's here because we see again and again in Jesus' miracle that that's what he is looking for. He is looking for faith, something he was not seeing in the religious leaders who have come to him. Even though his power was available to heal them, they did not seek his power of healing, and so they likely did not receive it. Here is someone who was looking for healing, someone who had faith that the Lord Jesus was able to heal him, and that is exactly what Jesus was looking for, that someone he could actually help because it was someone who actually had faith in him. Now, one of the interesting things we see here is rather than Jesus just healing him, he says to him, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And the question is why? Why does Jesus forgive the man his sins sins, instead of just healing him of his paralysis? And I think the answer uh, could be broken down into three parts. First of all, this is what Jesus actually came to do. This was Jesus' real priority was to restore people with a, rela a relationship with God. And what was keeping them from a relationship with God was their sins. Our sicknesses, uh, including COVID-19, are really ultimately the result of being separated from God by our sins. Our sins condemn us to death. Death comes in various ways. Um, but in the meantime, the Lord allows all kinds of difficulties to come upon us here on earth, to wake us up to the fact that we really need is salvation, uh, that we are in trouble. Adam and Eve felt they did not need God. They could just eat of the tree, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, they became separated from God. God warned them about the consequence, that if they do so, they will surely die. And we understand that death has... Uh, uh, at least two levels. First, there is the physical death, but then there is also the spiritual death, and finally, there's the eternal death or separation from God. And God doesn't want us to think everything is good and fine until we die and then go to hell for all of eternity. He is trying to wake us up to our trouble, and he allows difficulties to come upon us to wake us up that fact. So ultimately what this man needed wasn't to be healed or just to be healed of his paralysis, but actually to be delivered from his sin, to have his sins forgiven. And so Jesus, by forgiving the man's sins, is ultimately doing the very best he can for that man. He is freeing him from the guilt of sin and the judgment against sin so that man can actually go and be with God in heaven for all of eternity. 
So that's wonderful. Uh, the second thing I am guessing, the second reason I am guessing Jesus is saying this, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you, is that the man probably was sensible to his sins. He probably had what we would call a conviction of sin, perhaps brought about by his paralysis. Perhaps his paralysis reminded him of all the things he did against God. And as he was brought to Jesus, he was concerned that Jesus would refuse to heal him because of his sins. Paul says this at some place in the Bible. He says, uh, this is a good and faithful saying that, uh, that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul felt the conviction that he was the chief of sinners and therefore the one least deserving of God's favor. I would not be surprised if this man who was brought to Jesus felt that he was the chief of sinners and as a result that he would not be uh, deserving uh, of Jesus' healing. That even though Jesus healed many other people, that when it came to him, Jesus would say, no, because of your sins, your great sins, your mighty sins, you are not eligible of my healing. This could have been the fear of that man and as a result, Jesus says, be of good cheer, meaning be encouraged, your sins are forgiven you. He deals with that weight on the mind brought about by the conviction of sins, relieving the man of his fear and assuring him of his healing. The third possibility that enters my mind as to why Jesus would choose to say that at this point telling the man, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you, is he wants to help the religious leaders and us uh, better realize who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Remember, they came here to form an opinion about Jesus. He was a, a miracle worker, in a sense, or a person who worked miraculous healings. He was a teacher, a religious teacher, and perhaps they thought he was just a teacher, just a good teacher, and because he's teaching the doctrines of God uh, faithfully, God is, is enabling him to do miracles. He's just a very spiritual, religious man. What Jesus is doing here takes him to another level. The fact that he is forgiving people's sins means he is not. He is not just a religious teacher, or even a miracle worker. And that's something that they recognize immediately, verse 4, by Jesus, sorry, uh, verse 3, and at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. In Luke they added, <coughs> who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God has the power to relieve someone from the responsibility of the sins. That's not something any teacher can do. And uh, really a problem in places like the Catholic Church where a priest could, could 
forgive you your sins, uh, only God has the power to forgive sins. And Jesus certainly chose to reveal that at this time. Now, he may have revealed it at other times too. We don't want to limit uh, what Jesus did to just this text. But in this text, it's clear Jesus wanted them to realize who he was and what he was about. Now, Jesus responds to their judgment of him, saying in verse 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil within your heart? And I think what Jesus is pointing out to is that their judgment of him is not fair. To say that he blasphemes is not considering the possibility that he really is God in the flesh. They jumped to conclusion. They jumped to an evil conclusion about Jesus that he blasphemes. And you'd have to say, at least to start with, don't make that assumption. And if you look more broadly at the miracles Jesus did, you'd have to say, well, he may have a good case to claiming to be God and have the power to forgive sin. So this is what Jesus says, the thinking evil in their hearts. It speaks of a bias. There is a certain bias revealed here in the religious leaders against Jesus. And I mentioned earlier that it could have been perhaps because of jealousy of Jesus' fame. It could have been because Jesus' teachings were not consistent with their teaching. Uh, I'd like to add another uh, possibility here, and that the rejection of Jesus is, is based also on wrong theology. Remember I said at the beginning, there is a battle over people's minds. <coughs> There's a, a battle over the knowledge of God. Uh, Romans chapter 10 helps us perhaps see the position, the doctrinal or theological position of these religious leaders. Paul would have known it. He is the author uh, of Romans. And he says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So Paul is, is frank here about his love for Israel, his desire for them, to be saved. He just wants the good, but also the fact that their zeal for God is not according to knowledge. They did not really know the truth of God. This may seem surprising to us because we recognize that God gave the Bible, the Old Testament, to the Jewish people. These should have been the experts in Jewish law, and therefore who could possibly know God and the truth of God better than these people. Well, Paul explains the place in which they err, and that is that they're ignorant of God's righteousness. Uh, this makes me, again, think all the way back 
to Adam and Eve in the garden, they had that one command given to them, that they must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, if they did so, they would surely die. And then the devil comes in the guise of a serpent and says to Eve, you will not surely die. Now, I'd like to propose that when God says that they will surely die, he is, he is explaining to them his perfect righteousness. One sin is enough to keep a man or a woman out of heaven for all of eternity. Just one single sin. And therefore, he said, the day you will eat of it, the day you will disobey this one command that I am giving you, you will die. Satan said, you will not surely die. He was basically stripping God of his perfect righteousness. He was suggesting, you know what? God is not so severe as to send you to hell for a single sin. And that sounds good to us. We don't want to think that God would send a person to hell for all of eternity for a single sin. But that is the righteousness of God. God is perfect. And he cannot endure a single sin in heaven. And the Jewish religious teachers were ignorant of God's righteousness. They didn't understand God's perfection. And so we are told that they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. How is that? Well, by keeping the law. They broke down the law, God's 613 commandments, and they added hundreds if not thousands of additional commandments, and they tried to keep those commandments. And I imagine that they realized they didn't keep every commandment perfectly, but they thought, well, we are better than other people. We're trying harder. We have kept more laws, or we've broken less laws than the average person out there. And therefore, we are righteous enough for God. Again, it starts with not understanding God's true standard of righteousness and then trying or seeking to establish their own righteousness based on law-keeping and good work, and as a result, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. What does that mean? What is the righteousness of God that they have not submitted themselves to? Well, we can go back in Romans 3, so we're staying in the book of Romans. Romans 3, verse 21, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God Apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Let me pause there. I'd like to keep going, but just to pause. So here clearly we have the righteousness of God. And Paul says that now at his time, really through the apostles who were telling the world about the Lord Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's apart from the law, meaning it's not through law-keeping, even though it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. It is consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament. 
And that righteousness, he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus, just as it did in the case of the paralytic. He believed in Jesus. He came to Jesus in faith to be healed of his paralysis. And Jesus used that faith that the man had in him in order to impart the righteousness of God to the man. He forgave the man of all the sins that he ever committed or will commit, and he gave him instead the righteousness of God. Let me just continue here. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no difference. There is no difference between the Pharisee who tried to keep the law of God uh, all of his life and on the outside may have appeared to be more righteous. Even that Pharisee has committed a sin, actually probably a lot of sins, even if he, on the outside at least, looks better than his neighbor. That Pharisee needs the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no difference. Take the worst sinner in the world, if you would, uh, take Adolf Hitler and take the most righteous appearing person in the war, world, perhaps Mother Teresa. Both need the righteousness of God that comes through the Lord Jesus. There is no other way in which someone can be righteous before God. And then there is the explanation in verse 25, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, whom God, that is Jesus, took, uh, God took Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How is it that God can justify us? How is it that God can take a Hitler and a Mother Teresa and make them both right before God? It is because Jesus paid for the sins of both. Maybe Mother Teresa committed far less sins or less grotesque sins than Adolf Hitler, but she still committed sin. She also is a sinner and so depends upon the blood of Christ, just as Hitler would. Had he come to faith in the Lord Jesus, he would have found sufficient pardon in the blood of Christ. One of my favorite hymns in the Red Hymnal is called Savior of Sinners. And it reads, Christ is the Savior of sinners. Christ is the Savior for me. Long I was chained in sin's darkness. Now by his grace I am free. Now I can say I am pardoned, happy and justified, free, saved by my blessed Redeemer. This is the Savior for me. Savior of sinners, Savior of sinners like me, shedding his blood, for my ransom, Christ is the Savior for me. I am in um, 
a great awareness of my need as a sinner to have a Savior that can cleanse me from my sins. I cannot, through my good works or law-keeping, attain to heaven any more than the paralytic would be able to climb Mount Everest. God's righteousness is perfect. And by committing a single sin, I am not no longer eligible to be righteous by my own works. And the same was true as far as the religious leaders were concerned in their need for the Lord Jesus and his redemption, his salvation. Back to Matthew, we find Jesus reasoning with these religious leaders, verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart, for which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Jesus is dealing here perhaps with the more minor need of the paralytic, who I'm sure was still waiting breathlessly for the healing he was now encouraged to expect. But Jesus uses it as an opportunity to uh, give evidence or to reason with the religious leaders of the fact that uh, he uh, is who he says he is. Uh, there is evidence that he is God and that he can forgive sins. Uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus speaks to those he fed the day before who are now chasing after him, wanting to be fed again. And he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Seal is something we place on a product to show that it is genuine, to show that it is approved for whatever purpose it has. And so God has set his seal on the Lord Jesus as the Savior of sinners or as God himself by... Um, giving him all these uh, miracles to perform. So the healing of the paralytic was designed in this passage to show the religious leaders that Jesus was the Savior of sinners. He had power on earth to forgive sins. If you are a sinner, what Jesus did was to show you that he has the power to forgive your sins and to respond to his invitation. Something uh, small I notice in the passage, Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or you or arise and walk. Jesus doesn't just tell the man to arise and walk. He says, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. So he's not just getting up and wobbling and taking a few steps and everybody cheers. The man now has the strength to carry his bed and to go the distance to his house, 
who knows how far away it was. So Jesus' healing is complete. His power is fully demonstrated as a full assurance of his power to also completely forgive sins. And he, the man, arose and departed to his house. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. There's a slight difference in uh, the Gospel of Luke as to how this ends. It says, And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Likely, the different responses were by different people. Uh, besides for the religious leaders around Jesus, likely there were gathered a multitude of people just wanting to see Jesus, wanting to be healed by Jesus. Uh, and those people perhaps are the ones referred to by Matthew that rejoice that God had given such power to men, no doubt, including the power to forgive sin, whereas the religious leaders seem to be more fearful and saying we have seen strange things today. What's strange? Well, that a person can forgive the sins of a man. They, they just could not understand. They didn't understand why that was necessary in God's economy. Why do we need someone to come to earth to forgive sins? Because they had really a different idea of how a person is made right with God. They felt a person is made right by keeping the law, not by having somebody else forgive their sins. So it shows to me that the battle continues. These people, even though they have seen a mighty miracle before them, they're not completely convinced that Jesus is God, that Jesus has the power to forgive sins, that they are sinners who need his salvation. And uh, that uh, battle, perhaps we could see even ongoing as far as Acts 15. If you recall, that is when Paul uh, and Barnabas are faced with the Judaizers in Antioch, and they're sent down to Jerusalem to talk to the uh, apostles and find out whether or not a person, a Gentile who believes in Jesus, needs to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That is, become a Jew. Is it enough to just believe in Jesus to be your Savior in order to be saved? Or do you need to also Keep the law, become a Jew, be circumcised in order to be saved. And we see who the opponents are when we get to Acts 15, verse 5. It says, But some of the sects of the Pharisees who believed, that is, they counted themselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus. They rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, that is, the Gentile believers in Jesus, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So you can see they're still confused. Even after Jesus is crucified, after Jesus rises from the dead, uh, 
these Pharisees seem to be very convinced now that Jesus really is the Messiah, but they're still confused about this issue of salvation. Is it enough to just believe in Jesus in order to be forgiven for your sins? Or do you also need to keep the law? That was the battle that was still going on as far as Act 15. And I would submit to you that's a battle that we have going on today. And, and there's many battles going on over the minds of men. Some people, uh, like me, before I was saved, would completely deny God. They would deny the need to be right with God at all. Uh, but there are also many who believe that there is a God and that you should try to be right with God, but they believe that that happens through good works and uh, keeping the law of God. And as a result, they miss the blessing of Jesus being the Savior of sinners. If you don't come to Jesus as a Savior of sinners, one who can forgive your sins on the merit of his death and resurrection alone, you are missing the true blessing of Christ. So where are you in this battle? Has God won the battle over your mind? Has God been able to convince you of your sin and your need for a Savior who can forgive your sins? If so, have you come to Jesus and the cleansing blood to heal you, to forgive you, to restore you, to make you a new creature, um, alive, seated in the heavenly places, having a relationship? having a relationship with God and being able to now live a life that pleases Him? Or are you still stuck thinking that maybe there is something about you that uh, is, uh, deserves God's uh, recognition as you being good, you being righteous, uh, and you... Uh, by some good works of you being able to make yourself righteous before God. Where are you in this battle? And if God has won the battle over your mind, uh, where are you? Are you helping other people too? Are you joining in the battle as Paul did, saying, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Are you entering the battle? Are you helping other people come to see the truth about who God really is, who they are before God? Their need as sinners. We live in a world where people are not just dying of COVID-19, but are dying... Uh, for any reason, and entering an eternity without Christ. Because they don't realize that they are sinners and that He is the Savior of sinners. And so let us join in the battle today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to come to Jesus as the Savior of 
sinners, Lord. We are sinners and we need a Savior such as Him who can forgive sin, who has the power on earth to forgive sins. We pray for anyone listening to this message who hasn't yet uh, come to Jesus through that cleansing blood to experience that freedom that forgiveness of sin brings that you might draw them to yourself. And help the rest of us who have come to enjoy that uh, forgiveness, that cleansing, be willing to enter the battle and uh, be used by you to help others come to see the truth about you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.